another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides. And with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. But beyond that, we have an extra special guest today. His name is Stevie Black. How's everybody doing? Very good. Thank you, Jody. How are you doing, Steve? Doing good. Thanks. Well, thank you for coming on the happy podcast. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. What's going on in your world today? Oh, I am juggling a couple of different songs, different arrangements, and waiting for uh, some mail to come. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Sounds good. For people that might not be privy to who you are, Stevie, what can you give us a little bit of a short background on who you are and what you do, please? Sure. I am a musician first, a string arranger, a multi-instrumentalist. I play just about everything with strings and arrange for artists such as, over the years, Pink, Rihanna, Madonna, Snoop Dogg, Alice in Chains, Weezer, Ricky Lee Beck. Jones. Who else? <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo. Ricky Lee Jones, sure. Olivia Rodrigo, all sorts, everyone. Lady Gaga. <laughs> The list yeah, just goes Perry, on. It's you insane. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you Steve Vai told me I had the most varied resume he's ever seen. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. That's a lot coming, coming from, from Steve Vai. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. No, just going through some of the credits on your website here, it's, it's uh, pretty disgusting, quite frankly. It's very impressive. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm probably yeah. one of the most unknown recorded artists <laughs> that a lot know, like Tommy Tedesco yeah right well he's got a name people yeah, well people know who he is this, this is <laughs> well true. if you know you know right so yeah so now yeah, people right. know Stevie Black as well so it, it's one of those names that <laughs> the little trivia you can drop that make you hit at parties right well I know this there guy. you go yeah so how did you get your start into music Stevie I went to Berkeley College after high school Took a couple of years off after in the middle and studied privately with David Grisman and then went back to Boston to finish up at Berkeley on violin. So I didn't actually pick up a violin until I was 21. Wow. What were you Which playing kind prior of rare. to so violin I, then? I started off on guitar. I thought I was going to be a singer-songwriter kind of guy, like a Dave Matthews thing before Dave Matthews was there, you know, oh. acoustic rock. <laughs> <laughs> so I was playing guitar, mandolin, and then picked up the violin. After college, I moved back to San Francisco area and got some gigs touring with a few bands with Dan Hicks, Dan Hicks mm. and the Hot Licks. Dan did like a folk swing thing. He was big in the 60s, 70s. Like I met Robert Plant once who was like, yeah, I used to get off the road with Zeppelin and go home and listen to all the Dan Hicks records. Like, <laughs> you know, influenced a lot of people at that time. And he was great. But yeah, he was not, not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> So before Berkeley, though, Steve, what piqued your interest in music or, or made that an avenue that you wanted to go down? Because I, I imagine your oh, love for music didn't start at Berkeley, right? There was never any other thing for me. I, <laughs> it was from, from the time I was like eight, I knew I wanted to be a musician somehow. Yeah. Plan A, <laughs> no plan B. Yeah. Was no. it a musical family that you grew up in? or? or? Yeah. Both my parents were musicians. They met at Juilliard. My That's dad is a right pianist. There. Yeah, still plays. So the piano I have, I inherited from a family friend, but it was my dad's first piano after graduating Juilliard, who oh, eventually wow. sold it to the family friend. Right, right, right. <laughs> he bought it in the 50s, so it was already about 20 years old. It's a, an old 36 Steinway. It's, I just had it retooled a bit. 
sounds amazing. And <laughs> now bet. it's sitting yeah, in your was, studio. I, I so that's awesome. Yeah. So my mom was a singer. My dad was a pianist. So I grew up around it. They were always encouraging, but never like forcing me to to practice or anything. It was always just coming from my own love of doing it. Right. Right. I I think that's yeah. the way it has to come because once you're as a parent, you start pushing too much in in whatever direction it is. The it yep. can certainly when it comes to music or or arts in general, it can just have the you know the opposite reaction. It's just like it's one more resistance anything i think yep. anyway so that's fantastic definitely yeah and so my my five-year-old this for his last birthday in december he said i want a trumpet i said why trumpet because daddy doesn't play it <laughs> oh wow <laughs> that's great everything awesome. else was used so, up right yeah because <laughs> yeah. i have every in the right. studio i've got every string instrument you could want right right <laughs> but when you're so i get it yeah. I, I didn't play piano because my dad always intimidated me from his, his abilities. I was like, I'm never going to be that good. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. You mentioned starting on guitar. And now it's probably fair to say that most people will consider you like a specialist when it comes to like strings, like violin and cello and, and arranging all of that. What... Mm -hmm. What caused that transition? <laughs> well, like I said, I got out of Berkeley with a violin degree somehow. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Ended up, yeah, I know. So actually, my, my teacher let me do half of my proficiencies on mandolin and half on violin. So, so I was kind of the first student to graduate on mandolin at Berkeley, but the school didn't recognize the instrument as a real thing. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting um, when you think about it. Yeah, you know, now they do, I think, but back then they were they were like, nah, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so then after touring a few years, I moved to LA. I met a guy named Mike Elizondo through Lyle Workman, great guitar player. Mm -hmm. So and Mike had produced and co-produced and and written half the Eminem's first record with Dre. Oh wow. wow. So he was like really he was very much into that hip hop world. So he he started introducing me to all these different producers. You know, so I was working with Snoop and Nate Dog and Ice Cube and can't even remember like Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those the artists from back then. Right. right. But that I mean yeah. at that point that that's the cream, that's sort of like the pinnacle of that genre. Right. right? And I would go in there just with my violin and start working on like their thing was like we'd do an eight bar section and then they'd we'd multi-track it. We'd kind of do a little bit of an arrangement around it, kind of on the fly. So I'd do like eight first violins and then come up with another part for a second violin. And then they would bounce it down to their MPC. Oh, wow. And then okay. do another so we'd we'd record it on twenty-four track two inch tape and they'd bounce it into their MPC, which was wow. <laughs> you know, a bit of a, a, a sound uh disaster i thought but you know some of these guys at that time the mpc was such a commonly used tool and it was such a cool little thing that worked perfectly for that style of music so you'd record it all they'd transfer it over to the mpc were they triggering at that point just like oh i want it to play this particular thing that he just recorded and just trigger it or yep hmm. yeah so i would do an eight bar section so they'd have like maybe three or four different kind of string things to pick from for their songs and their placement, and then they'd put it together that way. Wow. Wow. That, that's, that's a very different way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm curious. It was, to, it was. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you there, but but I'm curious, though, no, when no. you're 
in a session like that and they're playing presumably like a basic idea of a beat that they have, or maybe it's a fully fleshed mm -hmm. idea, I don't know. How much direction would somebody give you like what they're kind of looking for? Or is it basically you throwing everything at the wall, what you're hearing and they like, oh, I like that or I don't like that or how, how much influence? A little both. Have? I mean, it depended on the song and the producer. Like sometimes it would be completely up to me to make up everything and, and kind of come up with parts. And other times they'd be like, here's this old Sinatra song that I want to take this four bar measure, you know, kind of idea out of and do something s similar to that. Okay. Oh, that's so, interesting. Because, you know, yeah. I mean, th that, I can only speak for myself, but that world is not something that I work on, I, I want to say daily, but I mean ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. It, it's just interesting how different workflows, you know, I mean, can happen. These guys had like huge record, like an old style record collections, sure. you know, lots of different types of music, like all sorts of stuff from the 50s, 60s, and, and on, they wouldn't be considered what I'd, what I'd consider, like, the greatest musicians. But, I mean, as producers, like, the way they're putting things together and hearing things and evolving the, that into a song, right. I think they're it's a true art form in, in every way, you know. Very much yeah. a big-time arrangement uh, kind of situation. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it was easy. I mean, in the beginning of sort of like, let's say, rap and hip-hop, I think it was easy for, it was sort of like a target for people that were air quote, like real musicians that would sort of like right. look down <laughs> on it and just, oh, it's just machines or it's a guy talking over, over a, a rhythm, right? But that is really, really selling it short because if you take any kind of music genre, really, there's going to be good stuff there and there's going to be bad stuff there. And there's going to be people that are generally creating something groundbreaking with that, they just might mm -hmm. be using a different workflow or different tools to what perhaps might have been trendy at the time before they come out. Right? So yep. I like to think of it as like you can always learn something from any kind of genre just because the tools oh, are different. Oh, definitely. How much did it change your workflow into other genres other than rap? Well, I mean, just learning how to kind of arrange on the fly, even though I took it in college putting it to real world use is always different, you know? Mm -hmm. So having to come up with parts quick and just do everything on demand, you know, it's helpful in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah. it's one of, I mean, you hear session players talk about it all the time. Like you gotta be pretty frosty when you're sitting down and it's like, okay, we need a part, go type of thing, you know? Right. And it's, <laughs> and if you can't do that, then it's just, Next, you know, get the next guy. <laughs> you don't right. get the Top next call, yes. Right. Pretty so, much. <laughs> so in those days when you would go down, how much was it? Was it literally just you bringing your violin type of thing and sitting down and they would mic <laughs> you up and record you type of thing? And then subsequently, obviously, dump you into the MPC. But that was, yep. right? Okay. So there were no yeah. sample libraries or anything at this point that you were, no. you were working with. It was all acoustic instrument, basically. Yep. Hmm. All real. All all me. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. And the then at one session I went to and they were like, can you play lower? Can you play? No, that's as far as the violin goes. <laughs> so that day I went out and rented a cello 
brought it back to the studio the next day and started playing like big football notes on on the cello to to like get that low tone that they were looking for and I kept that cello <laughs> and they nice. liked it obviously <laughs> yeah they loved it you know Right. So then I added that to my repertoire. Then I could learn to play cello as well as violin and give them a fuller kind of orchestral sound. Right. But still, again, I was I was doing everything on the fly and never writing anything out, never having like preconceived notion of what the song was going to be until we did it. <laughs> hmm. Gotcha. Moving on from the cello stuff, what's the next question that you have, Chris? You mentioned cello there. You started into that as well. That I'm assuming that you had some experience playing cello because it's going to be a completely different <laughs> and you're kind of <laughs> shaking your head here. But but no. No. I had nothing. Okay. I'd never picked one up in my life. You just rented but, it out I mean, and went to the session and said, "Here we go." Yep. The bow's not completely different and right. fingering, I kind of put marks on my cello like where the fingers would go, you know, like a fretboard would be. Okay. Um, <laughs> Now, you mentioned yeah, you got, like, the first degree out of Berkeley using – it was a mandolin, right? Yeah. Okay. The only reason why I asked that is uh, obviously you're approaching strings kind of the way that I feel like I would approach strings in that if it's a stringed instrument, mm -hmm. I'll just – I'll play it. doesn't matter. And I actually yep. – similar yep. to what you're talking about there, I was once hired to play mandolin on a gig having never even touched a mandolin. <laughs> and went and did the gig at Fun. the coach house. <laughs> uh -huh. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, do you give mandolin lessons? And I said, no. And he asked, <laughs> nice. why not? And I said, well, I've only been playing the mandolin for about two hours. <laughs> and the guy's <laughs> mind was like, what? You know, that's part of all our musician mental state of like, can you do this? Yes, I can do it. Yeah, exactly. And then kind of figure out how to do it, you know. Right. That's right. Yeah. I did a banjo gig like when I was in college. It was some like Christmas theater thing. So it was like on stage. They had the banjo player on stage <laughs> for for the show, and then you know had to figure out how to play a banjo. <laughs> right there on the fly. See the pants. Go. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, much. you you remind me a little bit of all the stories I've heard about Tommy Tedesco. We we mentioned him. I can't remember uh -huh. if we were rolling while we did, but that he would very much do that. It was like giant brass balls like yep i can do that that's mm -hmm. not a problem you know and, and just the mentality <laughs> of just kind of going for it yeah yeah and because um, you know if you say no then they're going to call someone else and you won't get that call first next time sure you know? right yeah <laughs> let's say it's a quality that i envy because uh, <laughs> I, I don't i don't have that in uh, the capacity that i wish so, but anyway that's how do you transition problem. from the hip-hop mm -hmm. world into what you're doing now how did that work how did that work? I mean, I was, you know, playing live with singer-songwriters during the whole time, so kind of getting my name out in there. I had gotten, around 2005, I think, I got a call. Brian LaBarton, who was Beck's keyboard player, is like, I gave your name to someone. They're going to call you. Eventually, it was it was Beck's management called me and said, hey, can you bring a cello down to the studio um, to Ocean Way for a couple of days with Beck? And then mm. they called back a half an hour later. Hey, can you bring all your instruments? <laughs> so I ended up bringing about 15 instruments down to, to Ocean Way. And it was a session with Beck, who was a Joey Warnaker, Justin Stanley, and Jason Faulkner and myself. Oh, now that's a um, session I wish I could have set on the fly wall there. With Nigel Godrich producing. Jeez. Oh, yeah. nice. So nice. It was nice. pretty amazing. And then it was an album he had started 
three or four years before with Nigel and then stopped to do something else and then came back to it. So they had these songs that were kind of half done. And by that, I mean, literally, like there'd be a verse and then there'd be 16 bars of click <laughs> to oh. add a chorus. And then there'd be verse. So we'd be listening to the verse and then boom, we'd be in for the chorus. And then we'd be out for the next verse and then in back for the next chorus. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then we'd all get around a couple of mics and do some percussion together. And then we'd all get around another couple of mics and do some backup like oohs and ahs and stuff. You know, hmm. so it was really fascinating watching Beck and Nigel Piece relate to each other and how they work together. Yeah. It's like so they it, totally had a plan. They didn't really fill me in on the plan, but they had a plan. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, did they provide you with a score or something? Like, this is what we want you to oh, put no. it? No. So, no, so, this so was all much? like off the cuff. Okay. And then, you know, I wasn't doing like stringering. I was doing like bass lines on the cello and on some of the parts or, or then I'd pick up a mandolin and do something on that or a lap steel on a couple of things. I have an instrument called an S-Raj, which I got from Lyle Workman because Lyle got it when he joined Beck's band. He's like, I don't know how to play anything with a bow. <laughs> <laughs> That seems but it's a, a really cool instrument. It's like a, something of that nature, though. He's quite the instrumentalist himself. He's an incredible guitar player, but he doesn't—he doesn't bow. Mm. <laughs> so he ended up giving that to me, and I ended up uh, playing on a soundtrack with it for him, like a year later. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> kind of nice. in trade. <laughs> I want to go back to what you said, like because you said they gave you like for the chorus it was like a sixteen-bar just silence, right? Yep. But there had to have been some kind of direction there. I mean, at least as far as like, okay, well, a verse is in this key, right? So we want it, we perhaps well, want to I modulate. Mean, Beck would be would play the song on, on acoustic and we'd uh, be gotcha. joining okay. him. It was, right. So it was he had ideas, he knew exactly what it wanted it to be. Gotcha. Um, okay. And it was just kind of us to to add add to it. You know? Continue. Okay, <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. So the, so I, I after, misunderstood. After that gig yeah, he was he was playing, you know, right, right, chords right. and okay. rhythm and whatnot. Right. And we'd walk it through before any of us started, we'd figure out what we were doing. Right. But we did like eight songs that way in like two days. So it was pretty amazing. That's <laughs> cool. That's actual very, very cut cool. and paste without cut and um, paste. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then watching Nigel work, you know, he'd mix up onto two track, flip the tape, play it back, and have some weird weirdness in there. It was fun. It sounds like <laughs> and working then with after an old that, task camp port of one. <laughs> Yeah. Beck's dad, David Campbell, who's a brilliant string arranger, you know, was, was like, Wait, who's playing cello on this song before I got to it? You know, <laughs> so we, I ended up going to his house for a meet and greet to say hi and kind of get to know him a little bit. And that was a thrill for me. He was he's done everyone, <laughs> right. right? you know, for the 20 years before me. Fantastic. Yeah. Kind of like passing the torch, you know, huh? Yeah. Right. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. <laughs> So I, at this point, you're, you're still recording, or at that time, with doing the Beck sessions here, you're still recording to tape, you said, because you talked about flipping tape. And, and Yep, yep. But when, now obviously you have a beautiful studio that nobody can see right now, because but we're seeing it. <laughs> well, I can attest when to that. When did I've that transition happen for you when you started mm -hmm. working more out of your home studio and delivering tracks that way? I was doing it before then, but more so for sure afterwards. So after doing the Beck record, it gave me some instant credibility with like more of the pop stuff. Like people are like, oh, he played with Beck. So he must be something to, to work with. Right. Someone that can do it. 
at that point, I started, and also after meeting Beck's dad and seeing how he works out his arrangements all in MIDI first, I was like, oh, yeah, I could I could work on that. So I, I ended up learning from him as far as how to how to do it for real. <laughs> right. So do you, do you now, when you're working with any artist, do you tend to do like a, a MIDI mock-up initially before you do the thing, presumably, or how, how does Almost that work? every time, yeah. I right. mean, I still like I, the other day I did a job for someone. I did it off the cuff and like, you know, just went in, excuse me, started um, playing cello and then kind of building on that mm-hmm. and kind of coming up with ideas just with the instrument rather than in my head. Right. But more often than not, I'm, I do stuff in MIDI first and, and it helps two things. It, it makes it faster for me to get it done and it makes what's the artist kind of in on my ideas and what direction I'm taking the song. So right. when you're doing so, that and you're mocking it up in MIDI, and we're kind of jumping around here, are you playing that in via mm-hmm. piano or are you writing that in via a mouse and keyboard? Uh, both. I mean, more more on keyboard and, and mouse than never like a live piano for, per se. Mm-hmm. But um, so it's... Yeah. it's but I'm curious know. to as well. Sorry to interrupt you here again, Steve. But no, when you're... Um, I think what what Jody meaning that if you go in to, to actually use like a score editor and kind of draw it in by hand like that as you would with like manuscript paper yeah. or right yeah as opposed to just like, okay well here's the F sharp and I'm going to go down the, the scale here and kind of typing it is that what you were referring to Jody right. or yeah I was thinking about it more well, in terms of the line of like Frank Zappa is infamous for having constantly had paper with him so that he could notate everything right. that he needed to do, whether it was in an airport or whatever. A lot of times yeah, these I'm, days, I, especially. I'm not that old school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. A lot of times now, these days, people can't literally sit down and just write music on paper. They have to be at a computer. They have to type it in. They have to listen right. back and wonder if they got it right. They're not thinking about how they're hearing <laughs> it in their head, right? That was my right. question in that regard is, are you doing it such that you already have a preconceived notion or are you experimenting as you're writing this stuff in? I mean, a little both. A lot of times I'm hearing the strings in my head before I even start, like after the first or second listen to the song. And then, I, you know, it's just a question of kind of figuring out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I have the ability and I learned how to, like when I was learning arranging i learned how to, to write it all out and do it that way well you can't go to berkeley and not learn that because they force I, you to yeah exactly <laughs> exactly right. i i can do that i i never really have <laughs> right yeah in my professional career but well unless there's a need i, was, I guess why do it right unless yeah. they actually say that you're doing a, a movie score or tv or whatever they might require for the filing of like having well, everything written down, that type of thing. Otherwise, I do that. I mean, I definitely do a lot of work on the scores app, but I do most of my arrangements in Pro Tools. Mm, yeah. So using whatever crappy string Score sound they it. have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not even that. Just like in the MIDI MIDI editor. Okay. And then I transfer that to Sibelius where I can put in accidentals and markings and whatever I need to make it if I'm having other yeah. people. If I'm having other people play it. Sure. When you do that, you mentioned like just whatever sort of stock Pro Tools strings 
you might have available to you. But, but do you ever work with any other libraries or do you have a favorite library? Like, no, <laughs> no need Dude, to. I play okay. the strings. No. Why do I no. need a sample exactly. library? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Exactly. No, I, mean, I don't want to, I don't like wasting my time kind of making it kind of perfect on MIDI because I'm just going to replay it and I know what I, I hear it, how I want it. So I'm not, when I'm doing everything myself i never write out markings and and dynamic markings or any of that because because i already have it in my head what i want it to be i'm only do that when i have other players come in and quite often i'm bringing in a quartet or a couple other people to play it with me and that Mm. in that case i have to have to get it out right or so no i was just thinking about i was just thinking when it comes to presenting this to a client right just the better that can sound, if we, but maybe they feel that no, we get yeah. the idea where where he's going and it's going to be great anyway. So yeah, it depends on the client and how. Usually, it's easier to do that with a producer rather than the artist because a producer can kind of see it and, and hear it and be like, oh, that's how it's going to be. You know, artist is like, oh, that sounds like crap. I'm, I, <laughs> I don't want that. Let's do something else. You know. Yeah, oh, so and sense. in that case, yeah. like when I did. The arrangements for the BBC thing with Pink recently, I actually, I would do it in MIDI, but I would also play it so that she'd have some sense of the real instruments and how it would sound, you know. Same with, like, you know, the bigger stuff. Right. Yep. Same, like, with um, Miley or Olivia Rodrigo, I do the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And when you're not going to their studio or that producer's environment to record at their place and you're doing it at your place... I guess a question that would be good to ask is, are you delivering it as individual multi-tracks or are you delivering stems? <laughs> it depends on how big of a session it is. If I if it's just a straight quartet, then I just give them all the tracks. If I'm doing like a 24-piece string section, I'll ask if they want everything because I record everything with a stereo room mic and a close mic mm. so they can have a more of a roomy sound or they can have a very direct sound. And if I'm not mistaken, I know you and I have sat in your studio before because I have been there. And you explained that yep. what you do when you do the strings at your place, you have that room mic set up, you have the close mic set up, but you also move around the room in relation to where the stereo mic is so that the instruments sit roughly like in a spatial environment for themselves, right? Yeah, that was a trick I learned from Steve Lillywhite. First time I worked with him, he's he's like, just put up a stereo mic and move your chair around where you know. So it <laughs> right. gives you the imaging, the imaging of where a quartet would sit or sure. a string yeah. section, you know, yeah. which is smart. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. One thing that <coughs> I've always wanted to ask when people like yourself do do what you do, I think most people that our musicians that listen to this podcast probably know how their sort of like creativity works. But when you're sort of under the gun and having to deliver something with a relatively quick turnaround, I I would imagine in most cases, what's your general sort of like mindset when it comes to that? Because I know people get so hung up on like gear, what are you using this and this and that, but never ask the question of, what I think is more important, like what, what's your mindset when you go into that? What are you listening for that kickstarts that line when you think, I think this would be appropriate for this track? I'm going to try It's all do- about what the song needs. You know? Right. I try and get a sense of what the artist or producer just is looking for as far as like, I want a big sound or I just, I want kind of a small sound, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, or if they leave it up to me, it's, it really depends like how full and how 
that the song is and what it what's going to cut through or not cut through or what's going to be best for that like right. is that done over a chat like with some coffee and a latte or something or do you do that like more formally <laughs> in a conference I hardly room? ever see people these days it's more usually a phone call quick mm-hmm. five minute phone call like or an email like hey i love these songs these you know i'm looking for this kind of sound or that kind of thing so you're getting references to what they're looking for Sometimes, often, you know, more often than not, like Timberland would always just send me stuff. First time I worked with him, he sent me a track. It was a beat, Elton John's piano, and he said, do something with this. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Elton John's piano. Did he sample this or did he actually have Elton John come no, play no, for no. him? He had Elton John in the studio in Vegas. I, I never got to meet Elton yet, but I'm friends with a few of his band members. And Davey Johnston one told me it was like the weirdest session he'd ever been to. It's like nobody spoke for like six hours, but he just kept playing. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, that sounds a bit like Timbaland because he starts out with the way he even writes. He's just singing into a microphone to get the idea even started. Yeah whether it's a beat or a bass line or some melody line. He works in a very (laughs) different way, for sure. By all accounts, Elton is a never-ending fountain of ideas as well, right? So it's like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. you you set him off and he'll go forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love having that soloed piano of his, just like he hits so hard, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a confident piano player right there. Yeah, right. Okay, what do we cover? We covered about how you go into sessions and how you kind of prepare. Well, you, you I'm gonna let's step step yeah. back for a second. You mentioned that you're going when you're recording at home, or not even at home, at your home studio, I should say, because it is rather not just yeah. a studio, but it is at home. You have a stereo mic set up in the room, and then you have a close mic set up. Is there a particular microphone arrangement for the stereo? You mentioned stereo mic. Is it a singular mic or is it two mics X wide? How is it set up in terms of the stereo room mic? I used to do two mics X wide. I used to have a, I mean, I still have a a pair of Royer 122s that I would do that. But it it became such a hassle. Like every time you have to make sure they were like perfectly aligned and blah, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the phase goes off, of course. (laughs) Yeah. And then. Last year, Ross Hogarth was just like, you need to try the SF24V, the Royer Stereo Tube Mic, their flagship mic. <laughs> so, of course, I went and borrowed one from from Royer, and, of course, I fell in love with it, and I, I kept it and had to spend all that money. But, yeah, <laughs> such a great mic. Hate it when right. that happens. So Hate worth it. Happens. Yeah. And what about the close mic? So you're doing the stereo mic now with the Royer. What about the close mic? Yeah, what are you the close there? mic I have... My main one, it's an older Sound Deluxe that David Bach made, but it's the prototype he made out of all original parts, hmm. all original U47 parts. Wow. So, so it's, it's got a, the original tube. It's got the original. So it's a Frankenstein U47? Yeah. Wow. And, it, you know, I've A-B'd it against a couple of real 47s, and as any two are different, they're identical, you know? Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Beautiful, Mike. And it's, like, handwritten into the metal proto, you know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So I had had a friend who who still worked at Sound Deluxe, which is a post house. They, you know, win Oscars for sound effects and, and all their movie stuff. And he found this mic in the in the mic closet. And he's like, someone has to be using this because it's just sitting here collecting dust. And he got the company to sell it to me for a quarter of what it should have been. Well, good <laughs> nice. for you. Yeah, that's great. That's a good friend right yeah. there. <laughs> right. Yeah. That yeah. was awesome. 
So now, do you use that on all the sure. instruments, or do you choose based on the instrument you're actually recording? I use them on most. I'm recently I got uh, I just scored a couple of um, the old AKG four fifty one super old one with the capsule and I forget, but um, you know I love the sound of that. It's really nice on violins. And sometimes if I'm multi-tracking, I'll have both close mics set up and I'll just like switch inputs between takes. So it okay. also gives a little bit of a, of a different, different tonality sort of coming thing. into it. Sure. Right. Yep. So you're layering different takes. Yep. Often. But okay. sometimes I'll just stick to the 47. And then if I have a quartet or larger section in the studio, I'll set up three different stereo mics and then a close mic on each instrument for them. <laughs> oh, right on. And that's, right. that gets a really nice, big, fat sound. I, I bet, yeah. Any processing on the way going in? Or? I keep the close mics through the 1176 a little bit, just a slight, like, take the top end down a little bit, mm -hmm. you know. That's okay. about it. Right. No okay. EQ? Yeah. Just straight instrument. And no a EQ. little teeny bit yep. with the compression limiting of the 1176. Yep. Wow. Hmm. Straight up. And Although I do go. like a little EQ on the uh, the Royer, just bringing down the highs a little bit and bringing up the lows, fattens it up, makes it a really nice room tone. So that's the room nice. mic. You do a little bit of EQ, just a touch, yeah. Okay. No compression on that one. Most of that stuff I'm using Neve style mic pre's. I've got the Aurora and uh, Vintech. When you say Neve so style, like you're talking like Neve style, top, right? Okay. Is that like the 1073, yeah. the 1084? Which one? More like the 1073s. The 1073. So the uh, the Aurora is a uh, GTQ2, which is, is a great mic pre. I, it's, I've had it for years. Highly recommend. As Jeff Tanner used to work at Neve as one of their main designers in the late 70s and 80s and then started his own company. So as it's as close to any Neve as you can get as far as the, the pre section. EQ sounds different. It's more colorful. Yeah, it's a great, okay. great pre. And I love the Vintex, too. All right. When you deliver tracks, then, how often do you find that you give them just the, the tracks the way you have recorded them? Or do you do any sort of like preliminary mixing for the deliverable? It depends on the, the situation, again, how big the section is. If it's 24-piece section, usually people don't want 48 tracks of strings. So <laughs> sure. I'll submix. <laughs> I'll submix first violin close mics and then first violin room mics second violin close room you know so they mm -hmm. ended up with eight stereo tracks or 10 if i do double bass or have a third violin section whatever it might be it's usually easier for them to deal with but sometimes people are like i want everything yeah my yeah, mixer yeah. is going to do this or you know they right. want it panned a certain way and, and that's fine too so whatever they need right lately i've also been kind of you know, especially with like younger artists, I'll, I'll do my own string mix as well. So they, they end up, I can have a stereo track with uh, a separate verb track that they can use if they want, or it's an example of how I think it should sound. Right. So sort of like, yeah, start and forget it this way. I kind of hear it, but here's the option if you choose to change anything. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Maximum flexibility. And I, I find that sometimes yep. giving people more flexibility is not always a good thing either. That's okay if they want to cut things out, if they want to change any of it. I mean, again, it's sure. their song. Right, I, it's, yeah. You know, 
use yeah. what you need. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Has there ever been a point in doing this? Because I just recently watched the Wrecking Crew documentary. And uh-huh. there was a moment of not necessarily clarity in that documentary, but a moment of where some of those musicians did not get credited on the recordings. And some people think that's a travesty. Others do not. How do you feel about mm-hmm. it? If you go and do something, are you adamant about getting the credit or is it, meh, I got my pay. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it depends on what it is. If it's something I'm super proud of, I definitely want to want to get my name out there. Mm-hmm. Sure. It happens a lot that I don't get credited. Whatever. I don't care that much. I like working. I like making the music. I'm not like, I need to be known. I'm not looking for fame and glory. <laughs> yeah, I, I want no, the I mean, right people to, to know who I am, and that's all that really matters to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, call me up when the gig is. Needed. I did the Olivia Rod- Rodrigo movie. They totally screwed up my name. They they put my real last name instead of my stage name, which I've been using for thirty five years now. You know. Oh no, <laughs> who's this I'm guy? Like, you know, <laughs> never heard of him. Yeah, right? exactly. How right. did I get a hold of him? Uh, I don't know. know. <laughs> that was a little disappointing, but what are you gonna do? <laughs> That's the thing that just can't is like coming out on Disney Plus or is already out on Disney Plus. Is there that's, a- that's that was out last year on Disney. Yeah, I also worked on the new Miley thing that's on Disney. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that one they didn't credit me at all, but that's okay. <laughs> ah, yeah, those bastards. Yeah, yeah. Disney, they're notorious for that. There is an interesting quote that she Olivia mentions in that she's really familiar with the drive from Salt Lake to L.A. Apparently, she's right. done it quite a few times. <laughs> And it made me laugh uh-huh. because yep. <laughs> I know that drive extremely well myself. I've probably done it <laughs> several hundred times. <laughs> wow. And I'm about to do it in a couple of weeks to come down for Nam. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes, I know it extremely well. So it's a it's a funny, interesting little thing in there as you hear the music that you're doing. And she's quoting this stuff of like, well, I know this drive extremely well. And I'm thinking, yes, you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Anything else, Jody, that you'd like? We've talked a lot about your beginning, how you have moved from your early days of doing hip hop into doing other artists now, and you get the call because you do such extraordinary work. You do more than just working for other artists by doing strings and string arrangements and recordings of instruments and whatnot. You also foster other artists and you have an oh, yeah. organization or a, I don't even know if it's considered a label. I don't know. What do you, I know what you call it, but what uh, do you call production it? Production company. Uh-huh. I call it a production company. And the name of it is? Because, <laughs> you know, I use the same flagship artists. Right. I started off thinking I was going to do a label, and then I realized I have no idea what to do as a label. <laughs> I'm, I'm a great, I'm great at making records. I have no idea how to promote them, how to get them out there. You know, sure. And also, it's it's a corporation that I use to um, pay myself as well as like the tax deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> how did you get into but, fostering um, other artists in that regard? I mean, I've always had side projects and things that I was passionate about, and it's really it's really an outlet for me to be able to do other things as well as just the string stuff, because I love playing guitar, and no one lets me play guitar, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, hard, I hardly get those calls, because I, I don't blame them. There's so many amazing guitar players out there. So, yeah, but, you I mean, know. But, but it's something about sort of finding... I don't want to say niche, but, but finding something that you're really good at, and, and sometimes you... 
might stumble onto that thing. And now you're the string arranger guy when that starting out might not have been your goal, right? But it's now it's, right. it's affording you to do all of this. So I'd like to think about that as well as never turning down opportunities when they arise, yeah. even if they do make us uncomfortable, right? Because you never know where it might lead. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I just, I love producing as well as even stuff that I'm not playing on. And, and I just have like the production side of things where I'm, I'm recording the vocals, I'm recording other people playing everything and maybe doing a mix. It's all good. I, I just, I love making music. <laughs> so when you're doing that so, and if aspect I can do of these things, are you yeah. sticking to just Pro Tools? Because you mentioned that's your platform, but do you use any other platform or is it strictly Pro Tools and nothing else? For me, it's strictly Pro Tools. Uh-huh. I, I bought Logic. I haven't really used it ever. <laughs> okay. What's the audio um, interface you're using to run all that into? The HD, what is it? The, uh, the, the HDS? HDIO. Oh, okay. The HD. Yeah. Yeah, for I got me a too. Couple uh, of them. Need somebody to show you logic? Give me a call. Huh? <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. we're both logic yeah. gurus. I probably in that should regard. one of these days. I, mean, I, I have a lot of clients that record in Logic, and basically, I got it in case someone wanted to send me just a Logic track that I can then transfer to Pro Tools. But I don't yeah. even know if I could do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's well. I've been, that's the boat I'm in as well. But I'm yeah. the other way around. Right? I've used both right. Jody and I've used Logic since. We were still recording yeah. onto rocks, you know. So, <laughs> so, right. But um, I started doing Pro Tools in '98, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. pretty early. I think it was version 2.3 or something. Right. Yeah. Still did you design <laughs> at that point, right? So. Yep. Yeah, I was about the same. I, I think know. Logic I'd- version two. <laughs> Before it was even <laughs> audio for me is ridiculous. Yeah, right. I've been using it for yeah. a very, very wow. long time. So yeah. nice. was, Jody turned me on to Logic, and I remember the version still. I don't know why I do, but I do. And it was version 4.6. <laughs> that was the first well, version that had audio so, was version 4. Was that? Was that <laughs> yeah. What was, yeah. Logic went anyway. with audio back in version 4. Before that, it was just a MIDI editor. That was it. Nerd alert. So I was, you know, you know yeah, right. I was early in the uh, home recording world. Well, it sounds like it if you're using Pro Tools way back then. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, but that was the um, first audio editor, right? Digi, I think some people might forget today because, what was it? you know, DigiDesign was the first one that started with the audio engine, whereas right. everything else with, with Logic and um, at the time, obviously, eMagic, Cubase and everything, they started as their life as MIDI editors or MIDI sequencers. Mm-hmm. And then added audio functionality, where Pro Tools was the other way around. They were the first audio editor that you could do that with, and then implemented right. MIDI later on. So when people frown at or look down at Pro Tools' MIDI implementation, that's why. Because it was added later on, and it wasn't such a full-fledged MIDI editor, but it was first with, with the audio. So question here on that is, did you transition from tape to ADAT to Pro Tools, or did you go straight from tape to Pro Tools? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there was ADAT moments. I never owned an ADAT myself, but I definitely used them for some sessions and recordings in the day, in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. They were they were big. I mean, they were sort of like the, the newest thing since sliced bread there for a moment, right? So before... <laughs> but I made a couple of 
my own solo records when I thought I was going to be a singer-songwriter on uh, the Tascam 16-track 1-inch mm. reels. Right. Yeah. Those were the days. So I made a couple of records on those. I love those things. That was great. You know, yeah. using my foot to do punch-ins. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> now that's yeah. going old school right there. Foot pedal oh, yeah. punch-ins. Yeah. I learned on uh, Tascam 4-track. <laughs> yeah, sure. absolutely. You would mentioned that you had started on a Tascam. I'm assuming a Porta 1. Oh, yeah. Porta 1, 4-track, cassette. As the we all did. Four channel. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was great. I know. Uh, that's nope. how you learn. That, that was the high tech at the time, right? Affordable, you know? So Yeah, affordable. Home studio. Did yeah. you ever sync your Tascam up to like a DAW? Because that's what I used to do. When Logic nah. didn't do audio, I was recording audio onto the Tascam port of one. I would do a Simpty track uh. on the tape, and then I would sync Logic with the Tascam. And then when I was ready to do the whole mix down after bouncing 10 or 15 tracks down, 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 down into individual <laughs> right. four-track stuff, and then export everything to a two-track DAT machine. Did you do anything of that nature? Was uh, it ever that complicated? Never did that. When I started doing it, there weren't any DAWs. <laughs> <laughs> this was like late 80s, 87, 86, 87, 88, somewhere oh. where I got, when I got mine. Gotcha. So. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Like, when did I no, get that, my that first are... Port of One? I think I got my first Port of One around 1991. Yeah, I think around mm -hmm. 1991. I, I go back a little bit further than that, Jody. Not with me, but I had, it was a band project where you had to sit. We're going to record guitarists later, so you had to program the drum groove, and you had to sit and count the bars so they had the drum <laughs> playing through on one channel. And uh, right. it, was, nice. it was a start. It was glorious at the time. Ever but, do yeah. boombox yeah, right. recording? <laughs> <laughs> All right, start wrapping this bad boy up here we really appreciate you having you on but before we let you go steve we're gonna have three questions here that we spring on everybody and they're always the same okay so i'd like to start with the first one here so first one we always ask is your favorite piece of gear that you can't live without which instrument that's <laughs> <laughs> up to you that's your uh, that's your answer i have to pick one okay we'll give you two I mean, general generous right. today my uh, 77 Martin and my 1917 Mandolin Gibson A4. Not, okay. even, not even a violin or a cello. It is a guitar and a mandolin. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my Very first two loves. Yeah. Okay, but actually, I'm going to break off there because I didn't think to ask before. But when you play mandolin, uh -huh. obviously coming from a guitar background, do you tune it sort of like standard mandolin tuning, or do you retune it as a guitar? When I started mandolin, I put the guitar down for a year and didn't even pick it up at all. Like so, oh, wow. I was went head deep into standard mandolin world. Oh, good for you! Which is tuned like a violin. So when I went to learn to violin, I already had the fingerings down. It was just a question of well, getting just, the bowing. Just a question of getting the bow. <laughs> right, um, right. Okay, so which is ninety percent of the instrument. <laughs> oh, that's an it's interesting fifths, transition. Yeah? I never actually thought about yep. it because it is right. tuned differently. And it is tuned like a violin. Yeah, it's the same tuning as the violin. Also, I have a mandola, which is the same as a viola, and mm -hmm. I have a mandocello, which is uh, tuned like a cello. Wow, there you go. 
There's a, there's a little <laughs> nugget of wisdom right there. Of course, it yeah, makes sense. I didn't sense. even know that existed. So well, I, I've I, heard of yeah. the Mandocello, but I'm not sure I've heard of the Mandolvolt. What was it? Manda what? Mandola. 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 I don't think I've ever heard of a Mandola. I know I've heard of the Mandocello. So Mandola's uh, like a viola, so it goes a fifth lower than the violin, so down to C. Okay. Right, right, right. All right, nice. Nice, nice. All right, second question. Else to check out it now. Yeah, go for it, Jody. Second, second question, question is, <laughs> what is the biggest lesson you have learned? Take your ego out of it. It's all about what the client needs. It's all about the, what the song needs. It's not about me. Solid. Yep. <laughs> good. Yeah, good advice. And uh, yeah. Well, when I'm working on other people's music, that is. It's my <laughs> sure. thing. It's all about what I want. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you're the client, so there you go. Client yeah, gets what exactly. the client wants, right? Yeah. Okay, last question, and this might sound like it's tied with with what you just answered, but advice that you universally give. So when you're dealing with perhaps clients with your production company or whatever, what do you usually share with that? Don't be a dick. You know, be 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 there for the people. You know, right. again, it's not your music. You're there to enhance. You're there to like do whatever they want, and if you're Touring in a band and you're a dick, no one's going to want to hire you. If you're yeah. going into the studio and you're complaining about stuff, no one's going to want to hire you. There's so many people that could take your place. You might be great, but there's others that are just as great, if not better. Yeah. So it's it's really about people wanting to hang out with you, or in that sense, or people not wanting to hang out with you, and then you're moving back to Chicago or wherever <laughs> you're from. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I just started laughing at that, mainly because I had a sticker <laughs> in my L.A. studio that literally said, don't be a dick. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's why I was yeah. never allowed in there. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty universal. Like, when you're in a creative situation like that, people want to stay positive and stay creative and don't want to hear someone complaining like i'm so hungry or man whatever it might be to have a career you have to be sociable and someone that people want to be around that makes good sense and speaking of the concept of somebody being hangry so to speak in the studio (laughs) as a producer when you have your producer hat on do you ever pre-think this is the time I should have some pizza or sushi or whatever sent to the studio so <laughs> that people don't even ask the question? It's already there and ready. That's a good idea, but no, I don't I don't really do that. <laughs> Although often my wife has a deal where um because she's an amazing baker, so you know, she could be baking things that we eat all day long, but she doesn't do it unless I we know we have a few people come into the studio. And then we could have it to share. And so often she'll make like a coffee cake or muffins or whatever it might be, like, you know, some really tasty snacks to if we know lots of people are coming by for any given day. (laughs) Well, again, I'd like to offer my services if you need muffins (laughs) or anything. Just give me a call. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Come on over. No, she's great. It's really amazing. Well, it sounds like a, a very synergistic partnership right there. (laughs) <laughs> musicians yeah. hungry food yeah her treats are as good if not better than any bakery anywhere <laughs> awesome, sold awesome. i'm coming over yeah <laughs> that's pretty amazing but uh, then right. again we can't eat them all the time <laughs> yeah yeah i can't eat them all the time right? that's right that's right yeah yeah we we need an excuse Whoa. there you go there's no all such right. thing as excuses when it comes to good food what are you talking about yeah right yeah 
on that note, Joe, did you have anything else, Jody? No, I was just going to say, I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to come on and speak with us uh, to our audience here on Inside the Recording Studio today. It was awesome having you on. It's been Absolutely. a few years yeah, since we've actually been like conversing back and forth. It's uh, I, I know that when you uh, first came on before we hit the record button, you're trying to remember how did we meet. And I'll just right. relay that story really quick because we met at a Grammy event and if my memory serves, and I'm not 100% sure of this, I believe it was at Volcano in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. And it was through a mutual friend of ours, Gavin Lurson, the awesome yeah. mastering engineer. Who also, he got me my first job as the uh, dialogue editor for cartoons when I first moved to L.A. Well, okay, step, <laughs> step back, hold on. Cartoon editor? What cartoons? So in 98, Gavin hooked me up with a studio that was looking for an engineer and editor and they were the ones that taught me Pro Tools. So I, I learned how to be super fast in Pro Tools through them. But I was working on Buzz Lightyear, Timon and Pumbaa, a bunch of Disney stuff. We did the first year of Family Guy. I, I oh, recorded all those guys. Nice. It, that was oh, that's fun. Chris's favorite right that there. Whole, yeah. That first year, I don't know if they still do it, but that first year, he insisted on everyone recording live. Mm, so okay. usually cartoons, like one person in a room at a time. Right. This right. one is the whole cast in the room, which was, you know, amazing You're talking to, family to, guy. to be involved with. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, the other huh. interesting thing about Seth MacFarlane, I was at some musician thing where he was speaking on a panel. And one of the things mm-hmm. that he did when they got re-upped after, I guess, was it a bunch of people sent in cans of peanuts when they first got canceled? <laughs> they got it in the contract that every single year they could double the size of their orchestra. Oh yeah. Yes. So when they first started back up, they started with like, I don't know, 10 or 12 pieces. And then the next year, maybe it was, they could add a few more every year. I don't know if it was doubling every year, but so they got to the Uh, point where they could do like a giant full size orchestra. And it was part of the contract that they had to pay for it. And that every musician that was on there got scale or whatever it is so that they were taking care of the musicians and everything, which is really an amazing thing that Mr. McFarland did for the music community in terms of family guy. So that's awesome that you started out editing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that one actually I was, I was recording and, and being a like PA and, and engineering it sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So that was fun. But most of the others were, were editing. (laughs) <laughs> nice you know because there wasn't cool. a lot a ton of editing because it was all live like we would just it was done right all through it and going yeah yeah hmm. it's pretty amazing what, yeah. what kind of turnaround time all at once. did you have for that though <laughs> was it like okay yeah we're, we're tracking at three we need to have this done by five type of thing or or how, how bad was the deadline generally for that show or just yeah. in other shows oh, just in general let's say you know i I could do a, a 30 minute show in a night as far as the editing and, mm-hmm. you know, dialogue editing parts. And I would be working the night shift. There'd, there'd be other people coming in day shifts, you know, unless someone was gone and then, then I'd come in during the day. Right. <laughs> and it then was, the you know, I did it for like four or five years until the music really started paying enough that I didn't have to do that anymore. Right. You know, but it was a great way to make a living. <laughs> and, and is the, the animation, <laughs> Completed at that time, I'm assuming. Like actually, when, with, when you with so, cartoons, they actually record dialogue before they start animating. Oh, wow. Okay. All cartoons. All cartoons, they record the dialogue first because then they so, could so, do the facial animate expression the mouth movements to right. the, yeah. Mm. Right. 
Wow, interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. So right. it's usually a couple of years before it comes out after it's recorded, you know. Right. <laughs> huh. Well, so another show I did, I cut all the cut all the sound effects on a show called Lizzie McGuire, which was a, <laughs> a big Disney hit in the early 2000s. That's very cool. Huh. I do remember wow, that. Nice. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's an interesting side trip right there. See, we see how much <laughs> yeah. we miss on this show? Jeez. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Moving on all right. from all that and saying thank you for coming <laughs> on. That was awesome. We're going to move into Friday Finds. And this is our portion of the show where Chris starts off by saying, hey, I've just found this this week. And if you would like to participate, we'll have you do it right after Chris. Sure. Yeah, I um. I've been in the trenches with a lot of stuff this week. So I actually haven't found anything new. But what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to give a softball here <laughs> because unless you've been living under a rock, you have undoubtedly heard about the debacle of waves going subscription only. And Aye. at least <laughs> as of this morning of the taping of this podcast – it seems like they're backtracking on that decision a little yeah. bit. But um, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. That that I guess my my find for this Friday would be that be wary when you really go head first into any kind of plug in manufacturer that you're gonna commit to using for an extended period of time. I think we we'll have to yep. discuss that a little bit in the next episode, Jody. Okay. But yeah, I, I kind of feel remiss if I didn't mention waves at all <laughs> this week. <laughs> so that that's my Friday find. I know that was a lame attempt at actually having something, but there you go. What about you? What do you got? Stevie? Me? You got something? Yeah. This isn't necessarily a more recent like this week, but recently I've discovered I got hired to do a work with a band in Australia called the Teskey Brothers, which are um couple of brothers and really great like old school style rock they had a couple of songs i did tom scott's doing horns and i'm doing the strings and they're very just cool rock like throwback 70s style nice and yeah. that's out now and the, or, or that's out, that a couple released? of songs the whole album is coming out this summer but the first couple of songs are out worth checking out tusky brothers cool <laughs> it's like fun jody what you got yeah. I'm going to go with the reverb today. And the reason for that is, is I've been remixing about 130 production library tracks for a new venture that should be taking off later this spring is the hope. And in doing so, I'm finding that a particular reverb is becoming very handy. And that is the Capital Chambers reverb from Universal Audio. And... Mm -hmm. The way I'm looking at it is, is I just did some strings in a, an alt-rock track. They weren't sitting well with the original mix and the original reverb that was used. So I tried the Capitol Chambers, played around a little bit with the mics and the positioning, and all of a sudden, bingo, there it is. <laughs> so nice. I'm going with I, the Capitol yeah. Chambers from Universal Audio. That That's my go-to also for, for string verb. Well, okay, One so I, I got to ask you, since you're mentioning, <laughs> mentioning this, are you talking about you go down to Capitol Records and use their Capitol Room, or do you actually <laughs> have the plug-in from UA? <laughs> I have the plug-in from UA. So okay, I, I, I tend to use that as well as TrueVerb and kind of blend them together. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So you're blending wow. a couple of reverbs. See, now I do that generally on vocals. Yep. I'm not, I don't usually do that uh, on strings. Although <laughs> back in the day when I used to have Altiverb, and this is where uh -huh. yeah, right. uh, I used to use the altiverb setup where they would have the position mic and then you would use a different tail mic so you could position right. all your instruments and then you would run it into a bus where you'd have all the tail. Did you ever do it that way or have you just always been kind of the capital chambers and the true verb? Not always. It, I, yeah, I, I mean, I've used tons of different things over the years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever. Sometimes deverb is the way to go. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Altiverb is great. It when, was when it when it was out and available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the Capitol Chamber is amazing. Also, if I, I once did something for Eddie Eddie Kramer, and I got to go down Oof. to Capitol to watch, to watch him mix it, and yeah, oh. so fun to yeah. Can I just say I'm jealous nice. about that now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the best part was, so I have all these tracks from like Beatles sessions, like stems uh -oh. um, from about 80 songs of the Beatles, mm -hmm. <sighs> as well as tons of other amazing learning, learning tools, tons of other stuff like Michael Jackson, like Marvin Gaye, a lot of, a lot of stuff floating around. But the coolest part was I could, I brought some of these things up for Eddie and he's like, oh yeah, I was, I was in the booth and John was sitting next to me and I set up a mic so he could start the count off and the other guys were in the room, you know, in the room playing. I'm like, oh my God, it's so cool. It's just, wow. It's like a little backdoor insight right there. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Very jealous. <laughs> Legends. Very much so. Let's thank just you, say Steve. thank you for coming on right yeah. there. Yeah. And my pleasure. Thank you, thank you guys for time. having me. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the name Stevie and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. See you, Jody. Thank you for listening, everybody. And thank you, Stevie.